0: It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne, she, her. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country and around the world who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab your cup of coffee, or maybe for today's show, a glass of a different fruit and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. The United States is home to nearly 3,000 vineyards across the country, with at least one in every state. And we are also the world's largest importer of wine, bringing in almost 6 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, $6 billion worth of wine from around the globe. The nation consumes just shy of 1 billion gallons of wine annually. Whether you prefer reds, whites, pinks, or bubbles, do you know what's really in your favorite bottle? Wine's history is filled with tales of deception, and Rebecca Gibb's latest book, Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud, provides a glimpse into some of the juiciest cases. Rebecca Gibb is a master of wine, a business owner, and an award-winning wine journalist. She secured her first editorial role at wine trade magazine Harper's after being named UK Young Wine Writer of the Year in 2006. She's contributed to and edited several print and online wine titles and is currently an editor for Vinus, an online wine publication which has subscribers in more than 100 countries publishing in-depth wine coverage and reviews. In 2015, Rebecca became the 384th Master of Wine in the World. In a record class of 24 graduates, she was awarded the Outstanding Achievement Award and the Boulanger Medal in Recognition of Outstanding Tasting Ability. Rebecca joins us today. Hi Rebecca, so glad to have you here.
1: Hi, thank you for that lovely intro.
0: Oh yes, of course. I'm so glad that we're able to chat. When I saw this title, Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud, I said, oh my goodness, we have got to have a chat.
1: Wine fraud. Who doesn't love it?
0: It has it all. So I was so excited to read this book. And when I tell you, it is very juicy. That was not just a play on words. I was like, oh my goodness, what has been going on in the wine world all these years? I have to know more.
1: It's the story that needs to be told, but they don't want you to know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And for very good reason.
1: Well, I know they are juicy titles, but uh, yeah, I also hope that play a word a little intoxicating too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to start with something um, that you mentioned in the book that I mentioned in your introduction, which is that you are a master of wine. It is a dis- very distinguished honor, but could you explain to our listeners what it means to be a master of wine and the process to attaining that title?
1: okay sure so a master of wine is the master of wine exam is the highest qualification you can get if you're in the the wine trade. and it's a global uh, it's a global institution and you have to be accepted onto the course first of all which is not easy in itself and then yay you celebrate that you're on the course and then you have many years of study ahead so if, I think if you knew that you'd probably st- Probably celebrate less. And then um, yeah, so the whole point of it at the end of the studies you sit exams, so you sit five theory exams, you sit. Three blind tasting exams. So, you're, this is probably the bit that really, um really scares people in that you sit down every day, every morning for three days, and you have 12 wines in front of you, and you have to write down where you think the wine is from, like down to the nearest village, and you have to do identify what grape it is, and you have to say, you know, how it was made just from tasting it. and. Uh, yeah, I think that puts, that makes people really, really scared. So you do that. And then, yeah, once you've done all that, they then ask you to write a dissertation as if you haven't had enough pain already.
0: I love that. You know, a little pain, a little pleasure, right?
1: Yeah, they love to call it the Everest of the wine world. And, you know, only about one in 10 people who ever start it get there. So, yeah, wow. I don't know. I don't know what the stats are for getting out of Everest, but yeah, I imagine it's similar.
0: Oh, my goodness. Now, have you always had an enjoyment and taste for wine? Or how did you come into um, your wine journey?
1: Gosh, no, I didn't grow up with wine around me at all. Um, no, I grew up more in like the beer drinking Northeast England. And not that I was drinking beer underage. But uh, <laughs> well, maybe it was. But anyway, that's another story. But no, I... I, um. I was meant to, I had ambitions of being a political lobbyist for some reason at one point, not really sure why in retrospect, but I um, was going to go and do an internship with a major international corporation and then global economics got in the way and I ended up doing a ski season in Australia randomly and ended up meeting some really, really interesting people who had a winery and a vineyard. You know, I was only 20 at the time and that was me sorted for life.
0: I love it. That sounds like a very fun way to find a a career and also very exciting. Um, My best friend and I, we love to drink wine, and we often go to wine tours in Michigan, which is closer to where she lives. And so that was the first time I ever had ice wine. And, you know, so just enjoying different wines, learning about different wines is definitely more of a hobby for me. No journey to becoming, you know, a a sommelier or a master of wine or anything official, but I can definitely appreciate a good glass of wine.
1: Well, you've just taught me something I didn't know. I didn't know they made ice wines in Michigan. So there you go. Every day, that's a wonderful thing about wine is that you don't ever truly master it, and that you will always learn something from the next person, even if they say they don't know much about wine.
0: Hmm. I like that. Well, I certainly learned a lot from Vintage Crime. It was I was writing notes all in the margins, um, because you give us this great history, of course, of wine. But then I was also interested to know about how kind of some um, food and drink, some of the earliest food and drink. Um, Udi's really evolved and the reviews. So there's a lot in here. Um, but I'm wondering for you, how did you settle on this idea of fraud and crime in wine? Because there's so many different topics that you could have written for your for your dissertation. But yet this was a topic that stood out to you.
1: Uh, Well, look, I did try a couple of other titles first, and they got rejected, if I'm honest. Um, But the second, but then, so I was, I was searching for a topic, to be fair, when I was trying to write my dissertation after I passed the Master of Wine exams. Um, And I was in my pyjamas, much like I am now, actually, when I discovered, (laughs) sorry to the readers, it's probably the middle of the day when you're listening to this. It's a night time in England. So basically, um, I was reading um, the, a wonderful book on, on champagne, the history of champagne. It was written by great journalists. So it's very, an easy read. It's called, um, it's called Champagne, which is very um, imaginative, by um, a couple of call, whose son are The straps. very much recommend it. And they mentioned in one of the chapters, just very briefly about the 1911 champagne riots. And I'm thinking, champagne, that's a luxury drink. I really like it riots, something I could get into, Juice is flowing. I go and investigate a little bit further and realize there's very, very little written about this. Well, it was only a little bit in French. It's much more of a narrative history. And there's almost nothing apart from a lady at the University of Texas, who's written a small part on it and a wider champagne history. So I'm like, hang on a minute. This is a really neglected part of the wine world. Um, I go and start investigating and it turns out that one of the main factors in the 1911 champagne riots when they're burning down champagne houses and they're rioting in the streets and the French army are stationed in the main city of Eponay and they're charging down the streets at at grape growers. um, One of the major reasons is that it's wine fraud and that's sort of where um, the initial spark came from.
0: Mm -hmm. I love this idea of wine fraud, because when you get into it, it's, of course, a story as old as time. People want to make money. Um, That is one of the big reasons for fraud. And I was really interested to know all of the ways that fraud has happened in wine since the beginning of time. And I'm wondering, is there one type of fraud or one way I would say that wine is maybe adulterated or maybe we might say ameliorated, depending upon your point of view? that really sticks out to you as particularly maybe scandalous or just something that really sticks with you?
1: Gosh, yes. There's so many different types of fraud that have gone on through time, as you say. Um, But I think the one that sticks out to me is the use of lead in wine to sweeten it. Because, look, there's been so many missed opportunities. Um, People think lead. How do people add lead to wine? Well, what happened was they were taking basically before, Before we had all this amazing wine technology, before we knew about, for like, we only really got to grips with how to make wine and how to ship it from, you know, France to the US, put it on a supermarket shelf and it reach you as the winemaker intended. Now, this wasn't available for much of wine's history. It's really only the past sort of 100 years that's been available. I mean, when you think about most burgundies, they've really only been bottling them for like less than 100 years. Um, It was all being shipped in barrel previously. And before that, the things were just spoiling and turning to, you know, vinegar really, really quickly. So people were trying to camouflage or trying to... And people didn't get ripe grapes. They didn't have climate change like we do today. So they were picking unripe grapes. Then they were turning to vinegar. That ain't something that you wanted to drink. So... (laughs) people were at getting grape juice and they were boiling it down but often they were boiling it down in these lead lined vessels and they were doing that in roman times and then they were adding it to these sour wines to make them taste more lovely now it became quite obvious that this was actually harming people throughout history but it kept getting missed i mean even in like 1498 there was a papal bull saying you cannot add lead to wine and then like three centuries later people are still adding lead to wine and it's harming them and getting the health. And it isn't until like the 1990s that the FDA in the US actually banned lead-lined capsules on bottles. There have been so many missed opportunities throughout history for lead to be banned in wine that it's, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, so yeah, it's I think that's one theme that runs from the very course of the start of my book to the right, to almost the end of the book. I'm just like, how how did we let this happen? <laughs>
0: Yes, but as you said, you know, it was it was easy, it was a common practice, people understood it, and of course it made it it simplified getting wine from one place to another. So definitely impacting profits, the lead in the wine also shocked me because I was like, "Oh my goodness, Le- like that it would make it taste better. Um, I clearly don't know a lot about lead and its properties, but I was like, wow, that you would put this into a wine. And I know there's some controversy over how much wine drinking might have impacted certain historical figures and, and led to their early demise, um, which I was also so intrigued to learn as well.
1: Yes, it's it's really interesting that wine fraud has not just affected... The common man or the common woman throughout history, um, but let's let's face it. I was so I was when we talk about men and women, I was seeking some females in my book. But God, history, the his and history in my book, I was desperately seeking women. So I, yeah, that I felt I did feel. But it, generally, the fraudsters were men. So yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> <So>, yeah, <laughs> the dodgy dealings were male. Um, but no, the, I mean it's been um, it really has been missed opportunities throughout time. And yeah, from, from, but from the, you know, as I say, the common man right through to some of the highest people in society have perhaps met their, uh, met their early demise through lead riddled Riesling, I guess. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes, you'll have to grab the book to find out who some of these people might have been um, who fell to a a delicious glass of wine. Uh, But you mentioned something in the book that really stuck with me. And and you kind of even start the book with it too, which is this idea of what is authentic. So what is authentic to the wine process? What makes a wine itself authentic? This idea of place and origin, um, but also this idea of process as well how wines are created and so i'm wondering for you through the course of your research and even just the course of you enjoying wine for you is there a such thing as an authentic wine or what is part of authenticity for you
1: you know what the more i researched this book the more confused i became about what was authentic to me because i have a history because i have Being, because I was a history graduate and because I've done this book, I've always kind of seen it from both sides. And look, what is an authentic wine? I mean, one of the big things that the one that I think if we're talking about modern day, one of the big themes that's coming out at the moment, if you go to a cosmopolitan city, there are so many natural wine bars, so many natural wine bars. And you know, this, these are guys, the the people, guys, the men and women who are making what they call natural wines believe that their wines are only truly 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 authentic wines that are being made today and they think that because you know they're not adding any yeast to the grapes they're just letting the natural yeast that are on the grapes or in the in the winery ferment their wine and they're not using any additives um and then the, they're not using sulfur dioxide and a sulfur dioxide is used um that I mean if you buy a pre-packet pre-packeted fr- fresh uh, fresh fruit that's freshly cut you know it says E220 on it and that's sulfur dioxide and it's used to as an antibacterial and an antioxidant. So if you if you have pre-packed apples or something, they don't go brown. Um and they say no, no to that. But the problem with that is that we've been Technology has come so far that you know we've learned that we do actually kind of need to add sulphur dioxide. So that our wine doesn't spoil on the route to market. And you know what? The problem is with natural—the the whole natural wine—it's become very dogmatic, and they—they they think their way is a, It's their way or the highway. And I can't agree with that because I've had far too many cloudy wines, re-fermenting wines, wines that smell of farmyards. And do you know what? I do not want a farmyard in my my riesling or my merlot. Thank you very much. So. To them, that's authentic. To other people, if you're like talking about Burgundy or Riesling, a truly pure Burgundy, Pinot Noir or Burgundy Chardonnay, that has to be from one single, very specific vineyard. And you see the vineyards named on these um, wine labels. That's one thing. But then if you go to Bordeaux, you don't, know, and it's, so Burgundy's like one single grape variety, one single vineyard, you go to Bordeaux and you see fit by the most famous chateaus, whether it's a Chateau Lafitte or a Chateau Mouton Rothschild. And that's a blend of at least three grape varieties from vineyards that are potentially not contiguous. And that's, but everyone thinks says that's not sort of authentic. And then, you know, it, it goes round and round. And it also depends on who you are. You know, to a producer in Shadow Neuf de Pat, you know, his or her vineyard, it has to be, it has, Chateau Neuf de Pat can only be made from that particular spot. And in this particular way, whereas there's other people who go, well, I like that style, I don't mind going elsewhere for it. So whether you're a consumer, whether you're a producer, whether you're a vendor of wine, also will that will influence your attitude towards what is authentic wine. So, yeah, I'm really sorry. I don't have an answer.
0: <laughs> no I love that you know because authenticity it changes over time those definitions um, change over time and especially when we think about the names and the place as you detail in the book that also is very shifting over time um, you know what are the boundaries around a place you know and how do the, those naming conventions change
1: sure sure if you were buying like a bottle of Chablis or a bottle of Sancerre, you know in the 1960s, you know, it would be a much—it was from a much smaller, tighter area than it is today. The, the boundaries have expanded, as you know, due to market forces. Now, can those can those parts of Chablis be, or Sancerre be truly authentic because they aren't the original heartland? Yeah, it's. I mean, this is a this is one that can run and run and run, and you can get yourselves into all sorts of tangles, which I have done on several occasions. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love this idea, though, of the authenticity and this desire for being able to say you have a wine from maybe this particular vineyard or this very, very small area or a certain time period, which, again, is supposed to add uh, to it's not just authenticity, but with authenticity also, it's status. And you talk about that in the book as well, how food and wine became a way of showing one's cultural sophistication, wine as a marker of class status, uh, becomes becomes really interesting because it also becomes a way for fraud as well for people to be deceived for people to make more money Um, and I love those chapters and talking about um, these fraudulent bottles of, of expensive wine or historical wines
1: yeah so basically we don't really people aren't really drinking wine to show off their status you know uh and that it doesn't become it doesn't become a valuable a valuable commodity until people start learning about wines which are the best wines to get like it's just and it's just like the restaurants you know which are the best restaurants to go to like people and people you know like you look on instagram today or tiktok everyone wants to be seen with seen going to so-and-so restaurant they're taking pictures of their food that's not something i want i like to see then there's i'm like yeah i can't be eating that i'm gonna have my beans on toast and anyway so um and then there's people taking like all these pictures of themselves with the beautiful bottles. And like, oh yeah, no one's, no one is taking a picture of themselves drinking 19 crimes, you know, or like a bottle of gallo white simple. No one is taking pictures of them. They're taking them with the most expensive, the bottles of champagne, the bottles of burgundy. It's like, it's like you want, and then you have this great fear of missing out. Yeah. But so, yeah, people, um, the intellectualization of food and wine and dining, it was, it started to be associated with, you know, um, your status in life because if you knew what the best thing was to have it showed that if you knew it showed that you had a higher intellect therefore your standing in state in in social circles was higher and therefore it, it perpetuated this myth that you have to be drinking the very best according to these certain small strata of people and this continues to this day
0: Yes, it definitely does. Uh, late, towards the end of the book, you talk about some more recent wine crimes and and cases of deception, which I always think are so humorous to me as somebody who's not spending $100,000 on a bottle of wine, uh, but to find out that people have been tricked in this way and spend even more money to find out for sure if they have been fooled.
1: It is difficult to have a lot of sympathy for billionaires have spent tens or even over a hundred thousand pounds on a single bottle of wine you know there are better causes so yes they are it's very difficult to feel sympathy for those victims and you do there is a bit of sort of you do take some sort of pleasure in seeing them have the wool pulled over their eyes for sure. Um, but yes, um, there are some particular, mo- I mean, the thing is with fraud is you don't know it's happened. Most people don't know it's happened to them. So they think that their bottle is correct unless they c- then pay for someone to come and inspect their cellar and the and the authenticators come along and go, sorry, these are all fraudulent bottles. And then what happens to those bottles? You know, do they, where do they go? Do these people admit that they have these fraudulent bottles? It's very rare that a wealthy, middle-aged white man is going to come out and say, do you know what, I've got a load of fake bottles. I've been duped out of hundreds of thousands of pounds. They don't do that. So it gets, a lot of the time it gets buried. So it's only really in the cases where people are, I feel, have, have, the, have the guts to come out and say, you know what, I've been, i, I been scammed here and i'm going to go after those people who have done this to me that the actual the stories come out uh you know and that comes out with bill coke who is um an industrialist billionaire america's cup winner you know not short of a bob or two but um he was he's really the one in the last little like the 90s and early noughties who came out and went after the people who had duped him and he was very upfront and honest but you know for for him, like all the hundreds that haven't come out and you know gone after, gone after the people who duped them.
0: Yes, I think that gives us insight into how rampant fraud likely is, um, but also it makes you question: it, Was that fancy bottle of wine really what I thought it would be, or was it maybe something else? Um, but you raise a good question or a comment in the book: Was you know does it matter if it's a a, quote-unquote fraud or not if you enjoyed the glass if it was an enjoyable glass if you got pleasure out of it does it matter if it wasn't what the label said
1: some people would say absolutely it does because if it isn't what you've bought then you've been obviously it's it's a crime has been committed however you know it depends on your philosophy really in your opinion there there could I could have drunk bottles of wine that were fraudulent you could have drunk bottles of wine that that were, well, suddenly adulterated, depending on your opinions. But yeah, but I don't think they have. I don't know, but I don't know. And therefore I don't feel like I am a victim because I didn't know. And (laughs) I didn't know, and lots of people don't know. And it's only when the fraud is then comes to light that people then feel that they have been a victim in this case. But yeah, the whole it all comes down to what the purpose of wine is about, I guess. And that comes back to the book and it says, you know, why do we drink wine? Yeah, we drink wine at five o'clock in the afternoon because you know your child's come home from school and it's still another couple of hours until bedtime. And you really want just to ease your way to bedtime. And you know, a glass of wine really helps that, especially when you're cooking dinner. But yeah, we can drink it because it's really delicious. We love it. And do you know what? I'm a real nerd and I really actually, but I've got I've got far too many bottles of wine in my house. My husband keeps, keeps saying, don't buy any more wine. And then I buy more wine. It's a bit of a habit. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not into handbags or shoes. He has more <laughs> shoes than me, but I really like buying wine. But I just like looking at the bottles. I love looking at where something came from, the person who made it. I think about when it was made. I think how long I've had it. I think, hmm, when can I drink this? So I'm kind of one of the strange ones who can take pleasure in that sort of thing. But But I also just enjoy drinking a glass of wine, like the majority of people who are not total.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is something simply in the pleasure of it, of having a nice bottle. Uh, Like you said, sometimes I find myself just looking at the labels and that often draws me in if it's like some cute illustration or something that just is odd also and catches my eye. Um, And so it is part of the pleasure just being, you know, drawn in by how a bottle looks. I don't know enough about wine to really be drawn in by the place or, or the, you know, particular, you know, where it's made. Um, but having a glass of wine, especially with a friend or to mark an occasion, I also think of these different kind of food and drink memories. And it is often the case that maybe a glass of wine is the way that you remember some really wonderful moment in your life too
1: absolutely i know we it's not it's, it's not a glass of water is it <laughs> even though it's about 85 percent water no it's definitely it's definitely it feels special you have specific wine glasses now we all have specific what we don't we don't we don't put it in a, we don't put it in our coffee cup we put it in a special wine glass there's a ceremony to it for sure um and you know, I remember what during COVID times as well. It was like we couldn't leave, but we could have a glass of wine. So I could, I could have a little taste of France, sorry, a little taste of Italy. You know, even if it was just through a glass of wine, you could travel. You can travel through wine, even if you don't leave leave your, your front door.
0: <laughs> yes, I love that idea of traveling through wine, and even if maybe that wine isn't really where uh, from where it says it's from, if you believe it to be true, <laughs> you are still experiencing that travel.
1: You can close your eyes. You can go anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. that way as well. And safe, and safe, safe on air miles as well. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, I love that idea. Wine about pleasure, about travel, and of course, about friendships as well or a shared moment. And um, something that you wrote about in the book is that because of all these changes in um kind of naming conventions or even how space and place have changed over time, you mentioned that at certain points that wine has also been classified by the occasion. So what occasion might call for, you know, a certain wine over a another and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that
1: this is one of my favorites so yeah we loved so we were obsessed with um we're obsessed with like pairing wine with food these days oh what will go with this dish what will go with this dish and I'm like do you know what just relax everybody yeah just relax if the wine doesn't go with the food just drink the wine before the food and then have it after you know it doesn't really matter don't you know don't get don't get yourself in a bother about that but yeah in in um in ancient egyptian times they used to classify wines um uh by 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 events so i think there was there's one for like parties there's like one for you know i think one of the my favorite ones is like the day when you have like one one for when you've paid your tax bill and that i mean you know you'd need one with high alcohol for that to forget how much it was that would be awful because they are sending it into the irs is never going to be the greatest thing yeah. So things about, you know, things for celebration, wines for dancing. I I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we should, I think it's, I think the ancient Egyptians were onto something for sure. And we should maybe try that. <laughs> Instead, it might be a lot less complicated.
0: <laughs> yes. I love that idea of a wine by the occasion, you know, what to buy or you also know how to start a certain occasion. I have the wine. So, you know, what this, what this moment is for, <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. And I think the other thing is, well, I think when you think about champagne, though, we, we, we or, or bubbles in general, you know, we're having a celebration, we're toasting one of life's rites of passages, you know, whether it's a wedding or a baptism, or, you know, all those sort of things. We celebrate that by opening typically a bottle of fizz, you know, so that's definitely a wine that has been associated with a certain period in a time and occasion. However, that a lot of that is marketing as well, that... A lot of that has come through marketing, even like so late 19th century. That's when it started Um, the drink for drinking for celebration through champagne. And they've they've done a cracking job of it. Let's face it. (laughs) They've really they've really nailed that one.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, and of course it had to be marketing because why else do we, you know, have some of these cultural beliefs um so ingrained? Um, this idea of champagne as the celebratory drink. Um, champagne has done a really good job of marketing itself because of course we couldn't talk about wine without talking about champagne and you know. Currently, we joke so much about the, the the naming importance of what can be called champagne and, and what cannot be called champagne. Uh, but in the book, you talk a little bit, too, you un- unveil some of the reasons why that was the case, having to do with fraud, but also having to do with how important champagne was economically um, as well. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this history of champagne.
1: Okay, so yeah, so um, originally, you know, originally Champagne um, was sort of an area near a city of Troyes, um, that's a classical area, but then people were starting, people in the, like the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, don't blaze over yet, um, they were, um, yeah, they they needed to draw a boundary around where Champagne was, but where was Champagne? And the people up in near Epinay, which is about, you know, a couple of hours drive north of um, Troy, this which is spelled Troyes, um, it's um, they were like no we 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 just want Champagne to be ours and the others were like no well we're the historical centre of Champagne we think it should be round us too and they were like no we want to exclude you and they're like don't you dare exclude us anyway this goes on and on and on. Um, and that's one of the things that figures in the Champagne riots in 1911 as well as the sh- fraud. But the, also the problem was that, you know, if you're making a wine sparkling in the cellars of Champagne, do the grapes have to be grown in Champagne? Wherever that may be. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you are. But yeah, they were shipping in, I mean, they were shipping in, trucking in um, by, well, by train, grapes and wine from further afield with the Languedoc, which is in southern France, or the Loire Valley. It was coming in and it was going to cellars, in, the champagne cellars, which are beautiful to visit. But they were going in there and they were going in as a Loire still wine or Languedoc still white wine, and it was coming out as champagne. Now, if it's been made sparkling and fizzy in champagne, and you stick a champagne label on it, is it champagne or <laughs> not? People champagne wherever they were, depending on whether that was down in Loire or down in Apenay and Rance, you know they weren't very happy about this the original grape growers um quite rightly but then you know it still goes on to this day i mean they're looking at extending the boundaries these days and like they did in chablis and zoncer back in the 60s 70s they're looking at increasing the area um and you know what there's a bit of a should have been a, you know champagne isn't making enough you know funnily that they should be looking at it right now um, so yeah they're looking at potentially why villages in the in the wider area that could be included so maybe there will be new champagne vineyards planted in the next 10 years who knows bull people still they're the true ones god only knows you can buy i mean you can share champagne you can buy you can buy californian champagne mm-hmm. but there's specific rules about that and you can buy champagne in russia because they've said now they've decided that in russia they've decided that you can only call russian champagne the true champagne not champagne from france so it depends where you are in the world it depends yeah it's all once again very much like authenticity It, it it can be a subjective matter but there are rule makers who have actually specified the boundaries but once again they are not fixed necessarily Mm -hmm. is that as clear as a murky glass of wine (laughs) I feel (laughs) like it is yes
0: I mean something that the book highlights is all these changes throughout history the different laws the different policies and the motivations behind making some of these rules to govern the, the wine that we eventually drink and it's certainly fascinating now because the book is about fraud, and we know that fraud will continue forever, Uh, wherever there are human beings, there will be some sort of fraud happening. I was intrigued to learn about some of the ways um, that folks are trying to prevent fraud, a lot of the different technologies that are being used. And I'm wondering if you think that those different measures will actually stop fraud.
1: As you said, as long as there are humans who have got egos and a desire to have more money, I think that there will always be fraud. Um, I don't think we can eradicate it. Um, but we, gosh, yeah, we're tr- people are having a good go now. I think though that I think why we're having such a good go at it now is that. Um, up till about ten years ago, I think the wine traders stuck it, his head in the sand, and they didn't really consider it a massive problem until mm-hmm. a man came along. Came caught, caught a lot. Then a man came along called Rudy Kearney One, who got ten years in jail in, in the US for wine fraud, and he really had he'd really gone to town <laughs> when it came to wine fraud. He did job. Um, he did slip up in the end. Um, but and then but the FBI, you know, then raided his house, and it all ended up in, um, all ended up. In tears, but um there are new lots of new technologies now, um, including um, you know, QR codes and like special antennas on bottles that if you like, if you open, if you take the C at the capsule, the top capsule off, it breaks. So you can't like one of the main frauds is refilling the actual genuine bottles with not the real stuff. So but if a wine bottle has been opened, you know, you can check whether it's been opened before. So that you, um, do, you know, you aren't getting a secondhand bottle, which is not ideal. But there are also it's interesting that since I published this book, I've been contacted by a number of startups um, who have actually started using AI technology and using forensic techniques in order for you to be able to check that that bottle that you have is real. Um, yet the onus is all; always, always seems to be on the um, purchaser. The buyer rather than the vendor the seller you know so mm-hmm. you know it's often these um these ways to test whether your wine is genuine or not you either gen- generally you have to offer the bottle which is not ideal is there uh, um and you have to have purchased it first and then you have to prove that it's not and it proves that it's not the real thing and to do that generally costs money so where's the motivation to do that yes if you've bought i mean if you've bought like um i mean Mar- chateau margot for example they've gone for like the bells and whistles approach they've gone for like a vintage specific mold and they've gone for the they've gone for all like the labels and the capsules and the qr codes and the holograms and you know whatever is out there i think they've like they've thrown the kitchen sink at it and i hope that that will you know, give their buyers a little bit more assurance that they're getting the right. But you have to know what a genuine bottle looks like. And you have have, have to have a lot of knowledge to be able to pick out the fakes from the genuine bottles. And that takes a lot of time. And most people just want a bottle of wine in their hands. They don't want to have to go on and get a degree in, you know, wine authentication to be able to spot the fakes. They are trusting the people who are selling it. And often... Over the in recent his, well in history, people have trusted their wine merchants, and they often become friends with the people who are selling them the wine. Um, and you know, are you really going to pull up somebody who you think is a friend, and then start you know having a, and then start testing them just to make sure it's there? there are blurred lines here, and um, but yeah, there is lots of new technology, and I think that yeah, I'm really interested to see if AI it could be a way to um, stamp it out. We'll see. Watch your yeah. face. Oh.
0: <laughs> we shall see. I'm sure that you know. For folks who want to commit wine fraud, they will find a way to be smarter than some of this technology, or just evolve along with it. I'm sure. Um. So, just a few fun questions for you. Hopefully, um, favorite wine, or maybe oh, your favorite wine right now.
1: You haven't asked me that. Oh, gosh, you have. Um, Okay, I'm going to say my favorite wine. Look, I love, I I love Sherry. Mm. It would be my desert island wine because it's made in a number of styles. And that's what I take to a desert island with me. I know it's like associated with old ladies. But, you know, I'm getting older every year.
0: (laughs) I love that. Um, Do you have a bucket list wine, a wine that you haven't been able to try, but you're like, if I could try any wine, I have to try this. Oh, thinking, thinking.
1: Do you know what? I think I'm really spoiled. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, oh, um, pass. (laughs) I'll have to come back to you on that one. I I know. I think I think I've been too spoiled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good thing, though, to be wine spoiled.
1: (laughs) I've been totally wine spoiled. Well no, oh well, no, first of all problems.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we talked about wines for an occasion or or classifying wines by occasion. So I'm wondering for you, what would be a good wine? What would be your wine for getting together with friends?
1: Okay. I'm really sorry this is gonna be super predictable, but I always open a bottle of champagne. I'm gonna I love it. And you know what? I love champagne and it just it just makes everyone so happy. It, it feels so special. And you know what? I don't because when you've got when you've got a full time job and you're um and you've got kids and you don't see your friends as often as you'd like to. So it's kind of a special occasion to see friends. I really do think it is. You should celebrate them. Yes,
0: I agree. And then last occasion, what would be your wine if you've gotten some bad news?
1: Oh, champagne. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. If you're feeling sad, if you've had a terrible day, it makes you feel better. And if you've had a great day, it just makes it even better. Yeah. So I think this is becoming a bit more I think this is getting a bit getting a bit one track, isn't it?
0: <laughs> I love yeah. it. A champagne champagne for every occasion.
1: Absolutely. Even midweek. Do you know what you should do? I mean, I buy half bottle. I always have a half bottle in the in the in the fridge. Because really just half a bottle on your own. If there's no one around, you can open it with, there's enough There's enough for two with like one and a half glasses. But if you're on your own, it's enough, it's three glasses, three small glasses, you know. <laughs> it's, you yeah, know, it just seems like a perfect amount. You should always have it in the fridge.
0: I love that. Just, you know, a little half bottle of champagne in your fridge at all times because you have to be prepared. You never know when the occasion will call for it. So
1: no, you've got to be prepared. <laughs> That's you're- what I learned from going to go, guides. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you've got to be prepared all right when people buy your book and they're ready to sink into this short history of wine fraud what is the wine that they should be drinking with it
1: okay I'm gonna say not champagne here Although oh, I really like it to be I think that it should be whatever you want it to be now I think that you know what I would like it to be I don't want it to be too serious a wine because you know what most wine books are quite boring okay <laughs> And there's no fun in them. There's no juicy stories. It tends to be all about grape varieties and soils and how many hectares a vineyard is, which quite frankly makes everyone glaze over. So don't buy to have something too conservative or serious. Have a really fun wine. So like get a glass of Beaujolais. That's always delicious. will get made from the Gamay grape. Have a really, have a really fun time. Have Sauvignon Blanc, for goodness sake. You know, don't take life too seriously and don't let wine wine people tell you like you should be drinking this serious wine. You know, have fun with it. Drink something you like, for goodness sake. Life's too short.
0: <laughs> oh, I absolutely love that. And Rebecca, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today about a Vintage Crime, a short history of wine fraud. Thank you so much for being with
1: us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to Rebecca Gibbs. She is the author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. And let me tell you, Rebecca is absolutely right. This is a great book to read with your favorite wine. Or if you don't drink wine, it's fine. Grab your favorite beverage, maybe it is that cup of coffee, and settle in for a very entertaining and juicy read. Trust me, I'm all up in the margins of the book with little notes. I'm like, OMG, I can't believe this happened. There's a lot of scandals in wine history and you will want to know what made it into the glass and what didn't. You know, as I was reading this book, it made me think about one of my favorite wines, which it's not mentioned in the book, but one of my favorites is a Malbec. And you know, here's the thing. I think we currently associate Malbec with coming from Argentina. And when you're looking for that bottle, you're probably looking for Argentina to be on it because in our minds, that's where the really good Malbecs come from. But I was surprised to learn that Malbec actually originated in France. France. And the word Malbec at, originates from a French word meaning bad mouth because, look, the French winemakers had a very poor opinion about the grape um, that makes Malbec. And they thought, you know what? This wine, it's not it's not going to make it. It will be forgotten. It will be lost into history. But no, it was not. Uh, Malbec was brought to Argentina in 1852 by Michel Pugot, a French agronomist, agronominist, that's probably not how you say that, um, who was hired by the Argentine government and it grew in popularity because of the way that it adapted to the terroir of Mendoza. And so that's a little, little bit of wine history that I learned as I was preparing for this conversation today. I would love to hear what your favorite wine is. And to all those folks who like a good Sauvignon Blanc, Look, Rebecca has just validated and affirmed your choice of wine. I thought that was just the best reminder that, look, wine is ultimately it is about pleasure. So whatever you like, that is perfectly fine. Don't let these wine snobs tell you that that is not a good thing choice. The best wine is the one that's in your hand and the one that you share with friends. Well, I have definitely enjoyed sharing this time together with you. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I am here every week talking to interesting experts from across the globe who are helping us understand the world around us and even the world right here at home in that glass of wine that you go to after a long day or after just an exciting afternoon join me back here 91.7 fm wyxr right here memphis tennessee your community radio station this is let's grab coffee